Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the, uh, into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud cry in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and to sweep her away in the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold out the testimony of Jesus. Then moving to Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. Then I heard what was like this, that of harpists playing their harps and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women 
for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Um, there are many stories in our culture um, that have turned from myth uh, into legend. And um, perhaps one of the most famous ones is the story of King Arthur. King Arthur uh, and the, the sword in the stone and Queen Guinevere and all that stuff. Uh, according to legend, um, there is on Arthur's gravestone this statement. Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. It's a great story, something like the 5th and 6th century. It was written and many people think that's where Christianity got some of its ideas from, of a, of a heroic return. There was a golden age. There was Eden. There was paradise. There was a time when everything was absolutely great. And then we rebelled. Humanity said no to God. And because humanity said that, everything began to fall apart. God said one last thing to us before he withdrew. This is the last thing he said before he withdrew from the human race. And they could no longer hear his voice without revelation or prophecy or a mediator. God says a word of hope. He says things, things look terrible, things look disastrous. There's going to be suffering and decay and there's going to be death. But someday, one day, someone will come who will take on the great serpent. There will be a man, there will be a son, there will be a king, there will be a champion who will come and he will fight. He will fight to the death and he will win. Genesis 3 verse 15 says there will be enmity, there will be a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There will be a battle of champions, there will be a hero who will come, there will be one who comes in the future, who will take on the great serpent, the dragon, all the forces of evil, suffering and death. And even though he will be wounded, he will crush all of his enemies under his heel. There will be a great victory. And that uh, storyline that the Bible tells throughout its 66 books has been stolen and ripped off and riffed off in many pieces of literature and film. But it's not just a story of goodness. There's also a storyline of evil that runs right through the whole of the Bible and the whole of history, right from the beginning of the Bible. There is a teaching that says this. There is the reality of evil in the world, not just a story of God's goodness and the rebellion of humanity that ruined everything. But there is a reality of evil and an opposition force to God. It's not dualism that we see in Star Wars of um, good against evil. And we're not sure who's going to win because there are equal resources and equal strength. And it's a fight to the end. And who might win or a boxing match It's not that at all. God is all powerful all-knowing and he's everywhere and yet he has a real and powerful foe not powerful as in terms of equal measure but limited power that God has given to the devil who is a created being it's there right from the first pages of the bible but it's also there in the teaching of the bible Jesus saw the reality of evil in the world and he taught that Satan is a personal and real enemy he's not a principle Evil is not just out there somewhere. Evil is in the world. It's personal 
and it's supernatural. We can see that not just from the lips of Jesus, but from the pen of Paul. Pen, uh, Paul taught that there was a supernatural realm. Paul taught that there was a supernatural force called the devil, a, a real foe for every Christian. So there's warfare up in the heavens that we can't see, but there's a battle for our hearts that we can feel. And that's a spiritual battle that's been there since the very beginning, right back in the Garden of Eden. So there's evil outside of us that we can read about and see in the world. But there's also the capacity for evil right in our hearts. So there's God's goodness on display in the world in which we live and the wonderful colours that we spoke to the children about. But there's also the reality of pain and suffering, of death and of disease. Because Christians have a real opponent. It's got seven names in the book of Revelation. The most frequent one is the devil or Satan. We see in our passage he's called a dragon or a serpent. And it's very easy, as many Christians have done throughout the centuries, to over, be overly interested and to overestimate the power and the influence of the devil. Many people do that and have done that. But perhaps our temptation in the West is to underestimate the reality of a force against every Christian. John doesn't want us to be in any disillusioned sense or uninformed state about the reality of the devil. And so what he's heard from Jesus in Revelation chapter 12 to chapter 14, he passed on to the churches in first century Turkey and to the Christians in every age who read this book. And it's complicated today. There's lots of different images that we need to wrestle with. But it's a window into heaven. It's a window into history. And it's a window into the spiritual realm. There's more going on in the world than what we can see, touch, taste and hear. And this is not a legend. It's not King Arthur type stuff. This is history. But history from another angle. And history from another angle of Revelation 12 to 14, it's about failure. It's about warfare and it's about protection. Failure, warfare, protection. What do I mean by failure? Let's look at the first point, failure. Uh, Revelation 12 opens up with a very fantastical and a horrible image. There's a, a dark fantasy kind of uh, hue to it. If it were a painting, there's a pregnant woman and there's a predatory dragon. And these two are warring in the first few sentences of Revelation 12. And the big question that we should be asking is, who's the woman? Who's the woman? Verse 1, she's clothed with the moon and the stars. Verse 6, she uh, flees into the wilderness. Verse 13, she's pursued by the dragon who wants to do harm to her offspring. This woman, in the first few verses, when we meet her, she gives birth to a son, an heir, verse 5. This son who's going to rule the nations with, with might, with a rod of iron. It's uh, taking the imagery from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament and applying it to her, her firstborn. Now, it's clearly Jesus. Jesus who will rule the nations. Psalm 2 is a messianic, it's a king-shaped psalm. And it paints the picture preparing us for Jesus. So the woman gives birth to Jesus. So by deduction, that means the woman must be Mary. 
Now, many people have thought that, but I disagree. I don't think it is Mary. I think this pregnant woman is a pregnant image of the church. It's the church who gives birth ultimately to the promised son through Mary. But it's the church who is a picture throughout Revelation of the myriad of believers in the Old Testament and in the New as well. It's the church through the church that God will fulfill his promises, that there will be people in every tribe, tongue and nation, a a number so great that it's not just 144,000, but an innumerable number from all places of the known world. It's the church in the Old Testament who, who Jesus provided wings for and carried on eagles' wings, as it were, into the safety of the wilderness. It's the, it's the church who received the protection of God in the Old Testament and the New as they travel in the wilderness this 1,260 days before Jesus' first and second coming. And so this woman, it's not Mary, I think this woman is a picture of the church, Old and New Testament. But the devil, verse 17, is warring against her offspring. This uh, woman in a, a different book in the New Testament in 2 John 1 is referred to the elect lady, the elect lady and her children. So it can't be Mary. I think it's got to be the church, the church of Jesus Christ and all the members therein. But notice it's not just a pregnant woman and a divine son that are the cast of characters in chapter 12. There's also this, this horrible foe. It's a kind of a fantasy image once again. And look at, the, uh, look at the, the dragon. Here's the chosen lady in the most vulnerable position a woman can be in. And she's facing this horrendous beast, this dragon covered with the symbols of power and authority. Verse 3. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, signs of rule and authority and power. And this single scene, this little tableau in the first seven to ten verses of chapter 12 Revelation is a condensed summary of the whole of human history. It's a battle I get of Satan against God's anointed. It's a battle, but the promise from Genesis 3 still stands that God would send a champion who would fight and win even through his death, and Satan would rule and reign no more. He would be banished. Behind all of human history, there is this unseen reality that we struggle to admit to, and we certainly struggle to comprehend in the 21st century. It is good against evil, or rather it's a puny fist of evil against the almighty goodness of God that we see in every day and read of in every page of the Bible. But as we read the Bible, we see Satan's fingerprints marking human history. I mean, it was the devil in Genesis chapter 6 who wanted Cain to put Abel's life to an end. It was Cain, under the influence of the devil, who wanted to snuff out the seed of the woman. It was the devil who worked through Pharaoh to try and destroy the whole of Israel, all of God's people. But the Lord rescued his people on eagle's wings. 
It was the devil who persuaded Saul to try and kill David again and again because he wanted to do away with the Lord's anointed. It was the devil who worked through Haman as he tried to put to death Mordecai and all the Jewish people, but they were saved through Queen Esther's righteousness and her courage and character. All through history, leading up to the birth of Jesus, we see the devil's fingertips behind men and women's actions, wanting to snuff out the divine seed that pointed to Jesus. But it's not just before Jesus' birth. At Jesus' birth, the devil is at work again through King Herod, who killed much of his own family and was determined to be the king of the Jews in his own right. And so it's the devil who inspired King Herod to do this awful atrocity of killing every son two years old or younger. Christmas is not cosy. The first Christmas was scary because the devil is behind all the evil actions of history. And just as the devil hates the woman's firstborn, so she hates any who would love the name of Jesus. She hates the church. Or he hates the church. Verse 17 shows us that he pursues the woman into the wilderness because he wants to kill her and kill everyone that owns the name of Jesus. This limited power that the devil has, he wants to destroy your faith and confidence in Jesus. He will use his limited power to harm, to divide, to persecute, to discourage. The devil can never create something new. He has no new strategies. So we can read the Bible and see how he works. He accuses, he divides, he persecutes, he lies. And he always uses people to do that. People like Herod and Pharaoh, people like Haman in the Old Testament, people like Judas in the New Testament, people like Paul before he was rescued from darkness and brought into the light. He breathed out murderous threats against the church until Jesus showed himself to him in power and glory and it changed him forever friends don't forget this reality as we read on our news feeds as we listen on the radio behind the evil in the world is satan using his limited power to influence and divide to destroy and to persecute and notice just how quickly, against this backdrop of, the, backdrop of the reality of the spiritual world, John condenses what he spends a whole gospel writing, he condenses just into a few words, the life and ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. The spiritual realm, the spiritual battle, and the comprehensiveness of Jesus' life and ministry is summed up in just a few words in verse 5. The child of the woman is snatched away to God, and his throne. John's saying, I don't want you to focus on the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. I want you to really understand the victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus is seen in his death and in his ascension. He defeated the devil at the cross and God took him to a place of safety in heaven, ruling by his righteous right hand. There's nothing the devil can do to harm the anointed son of God anymore. He sought to do his worst but Jesus defeated him at the cross. 
That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says in 2 Colossians, there's more going on at the cross than a good man dying. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who cancelled the written code that would condemn all of us because we are unrighteous. He took it and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of the dark spiritual forces at the cross. He triumphed over them. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus dying for the sins of the world, but at the same time, he's disarming, he's defeating, he's destroying the power and influence of the evil one. He is fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3. He is the triumphant seed of the woman of the church crushing the head of the evil one. So evil is not something you just read about in the papers. It's not something you feel when only when someone smashes a window and breaks into your car or burgles your house. Evil brings with it devastation, destruction and horror. And it's easy when we read the paper just to think it will always be this way. And the Bible says, no, it won't. There is coming a day because Jesus has sealed it with his death-giving victory that he will return in life to rule and to reign and death will be defeated. There'll be no more suffering or pain. Evil will be done away with. Sin will be destroyed. You'll be able to see the true colors of creation and you'll be judging angels and ruling victorious with him because the devil's plan failed. It was a failure. But the reality is, as the Apostle Paul says many times, especially Ephesians chapter 6, whilst the devil was defeated, there is the reality of spiritual war even today. It's the second point, the reality of failure, but there's also the reality of warfare. Now, too many times I would like to admit I've seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I've not read the books. I leave that to my sons and daughters to read. But I've watched the films and I know them pretty well. At the end of the first film, The Fellowship of the Ring, you are introduced to a new character called the Balrog. The Balrog, as you can see on the screen, is this awesome picture. The Fellowship have journeyed through the mountains of Moria and Gandalf has led them well and they've defeated their foes and they're running for their life and they come across a pretty dodgy staircase that was not built in conformance with building regulations. And there's this wonderful scene where Gandalf using all his Gandalf the Grey authority, stamps his uh, rod and says, you shall not pass to the Balrog. And the Balrog is defeated And when he sees the glory and the authority of Gandalf. I wonder who he's a picture of. And as he's defeated the Balrog, and as he's falling from not just the camera scene, but from the pages of the book and down into the deep darkness, Gandalf turns and speaks to the fellowship. And then something happens. I won't give too much away if I haven't already. Something happens as the Balrog does his worst. And when it looks like he has plunged into darkness, his tail whips out and Gandalf is brought down with the Balrog to his apparent death. That's all I'm going to say. Spoiler alert. He wants to do his worst, but he's a defeated enemy. In verse 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 12, we see once again, the defeated enemy, but the reality of a battle. We meet Michael. Michael, who is the chief angel of heaven. He's, he's like the general. And there's no new battle and there's no new victory here. 
It's not as if Michael has won a new victory. Michael is applying the victory of King Jesus on the cross to the serpent, to the devil, and he casts him down onto the earth. This is the victory that happened not before the world was made. This, I believe, is the victory that happened on the cross. And Jesus has risen victorious, and Michael casts the devil down onto the earth for a limited period of time. He has limited power, limited influence, but he's real. And Michael casts him down from the heavens to the earth. John is not saying anything different here than he says in the Gospels, but he's cast down from heaven to earth to do his worst. And although he's lost, he's still fighting. He's like a, a drunkard who knows he's lost, but he's still swinging. He's like someone who has been arrested by the police for doing something wrong, but he's still struggling. That's the picture of the Balrog, and that's the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 12. There's a great war in heaven. And although Satan has been defeated at the cross, he wants to take as many down with him as possible into his dark abode. And the question as he pursues God's people, verse 13, into the desert for time, times and half a time. That's another way that John has said last week, three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months, this is a three and a half year period, I think. It's just symbolic time of, between Jesus' first and second coming. That's the time of tribulation where Satan is warring against Jesus' church. And Satan, verse 13 and verse 17 of chapter 12, wants nothing more than to drag as many people down as he can with him. He wants to do his worst before Jesus comes to show his authority and rule with righteousness and a rod of iron. And the question is, how does he do that? This is where we need to get into chapter 13, which is pretty interesting. But let me do that by telling you about Banksy. I'm sure many of us have heard of Banksy. He's this urban artist who does wonderful works of art and no one can quite find out who he is. I wonder if you saw this picture this week, this on the screen. This week, Banksy did a parody, and it was sold for four and a half million pounds. It's a parody of a wonderful piece of art by Monet called Water Lilies. It's a bridge that you can see on your screen. And uh, Banksy has done a parody of that to say, I'm going to do a copy of the wonderful piece of work from Monet. And he's produced equally, I think, a wonderful piece of art in a modern sense with Water Lilies and the bridge. And as you can see, it's been ruined by a traffic cone and a couple of shopping trolleys from a certain place. It's a parody of the real thing. And that's a very helpful way in to a complicated passage in the Bible. In Revelation 12 and into Revelation 13, you see a parody of worship and you see a parody of the Trinity. You've got the dragon and you've got his two sidekicks, a beast, number one and a beast number two. Let's look at those two together. Satan makes war on the church and he does it and the world and he does it by releasing these two beasts that are his two sidekicks. In the first 10 verses of chapter 13, you meet the first beast. The first beast looks and sounds like Jesus. He uh, has all the authority and the signs from the first beast, the dragon of chapter 12. But notice how Jesus like this beast sounds. Verse three, he bears a mortal wound, but it's been healed. Verse four, 
He looks impressive, chapter 13, verse 4, and he has limited authority. Verse 7, though, this beast under the authority of the dragon wars on the church and on the world. In the first century, undoubtedly, this beast, that's a symbol of earthly power and authority that the world marvels at, would be Rome. But let's not limit it to one period of time. This is a picture of authority and political power in the world under the influence and authority of the beast. But that's not where it ends. If you continue noticing in chapter 13, verses 11 and following, we meet not a beast from the sea, but a beast from the earth. It's a symbol of saying all of creation is under some limited influence and threat from the devil. The second beast, verse 11, comes from the earth, looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It's a parody. It's, it's counterfeit. It uses its power like the Holy Spirit gives life to the world. This uh, beast has power, but only to deceive. It gives some life to those who want to harm the church and that don't worship its master, the dragon. It's a picture of false ideologies, false spiritual power, death-giving spiritual powers rather than life-giving spiritual powers. It wants to deceive and to harm the church of God and the world that God has made. These three animals, these three beasts, is a false trinity longing for false worship. Rather than worshipping God, they want the world to worship them. Where God the Father is the one who creates and plans and the Son who lovingly obeys and who was really wounded. And the Spirit who alone breathes life into dead people. The dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land are a parody of the Holy Trinity of God. And they long to set up a false worship system to praise the dragon rather than the Son and the Holy Spirit wanting and longing to give praise and glory to God. The victory has been won, chapter 12, verse 14. But there is a battle that is raging on the earth between Jesus' first and second coming. And Satan wants nothing more. The dragon, along with these two beasts of authority and influence, to harm the church of God. Verse 10 of chapter 12 tells us that Satan would do this through accusation. Maybe he said it to you even this week. If people knew what you had done, if people knew from church or in your own home where you have clicked, if people knew how much you ate or drank, if people knew your attitude, boys and girls, towards your parents, if people knew... Satan is accusing the church. That's what he does. He's saying, look in the mirror and you won't like what you see. But it's not just the accusation that Satan wants to divide the church and harm God's people. It's through a, a flood, not of water on the earth that we see in chapter 12, but a flood of lies. Satan accuses and Satan whispers lies. He whispered it to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's just the same today. If God is there, does he care? It's the accusation and the lie from this devil. He's saying God isn't there. God doesn't care. You know what's best. Where is God? Your life should not be like this. Is God there? Does he care? That's the lie from 
the lips of the dragon. He does it through accusation. He does it through lies. He does it through false teaching to divide the church of God because he longs that there will be less glory brought to King Jesus. And so God wants to protect his church. And for so verse 14 of chapter 12, amidst the warfare, amidst the failure of the plan of the dragon, God will protect his church. And he takes them on eagle's wings and nourishes them and protects them in the wilderness. I mean, what's the hope for the church when you see these three awesome foe? Well, there's plenty of hope. Because God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-seeing, and he's always good. And so the end of chapter 12 speaks not of failure or warfare, but of protection. That's another theme that runs through the book of Revelation. It's there in chapter 12, and it's there in the first five verses of Revelation 14. You know, it's easy to get disorientated. It's easy to get disorientated if you're in a new place. Maybe if you've, you've uh, forgotten where you are. Uh, Joe and I have been watching a, a, a program recently, we watched a lot of TV, but this is called The Long Way Up. It tells the story of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, and they're on their electronic bikes, and they're traveling the western seaboard from the tip of Argentina all the way up to Los Angeles. It's about 15,000 kilometers. At one point, they get here. They get to Bolivia. And in Bolivia, there are these remarkable salt plains, these salt flats. And as they're speaking to some locals before they enter the salt plains, that's just remarkable with drone footage. It's wonderful to see. But as they were speaking to locals, the locals said, be careful. Make sure you know where you're going because it's easy to get disorientated in the salt flats because they're so vast. And people go in there and don't come out. People go in and they die because they lose their bearings. Friends, with all this information about the devil and the reality of warfare in our world, spiritual battles that can divide our hearts, can split churches, we need to know where we are coming from and we need to know where we're going. And that's what Jesus says to John as he sees a new vision in chapter 14, verse one. Then I looked. And there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The nations are raging under the influence of the first beast, under the dragon's authority. There are people who are under the ideology of the evil one, who think light is darkness and darkness is light. And here with an echo to Psalm 2, once again, we see Jesus' uh, ruling nature and character. Where is he? It says, verse 1, not on Zion, his holy hill, but he's on Mount Zion. Here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with his loving rule and reign, surrounded by his people who are eternally safe. Despite the devil doing his worst, look how many people are there. Symbolically, 144,000 people. God's people are perfect and complete. They're not marked with a, a number parody, 666. That's a parody of the perfect number, 777, as we've seen. That's the number of perfection from the book of Revelation. But notice what has happened to the church through the book of Revelation. Back in uh, chapter 7, 
the church has been counted, it's been numbered 144,000. In chapter 11, the church is measured, it's safe, it's complete. And now chapter 14, the church is named. It's not marked or branded or anything like that. It's named. Here is God surrounded by his people, eternally safe, eternally secure because of what he has done. No more accusation from the evil one against those that are amongst God's people. This is the gospel. Jesus says, I know what you've done and I love you. I've seen all the way to the bottom of your heart and I love you just the same. My son's life-giving death has forgiven you. No condemnation, no accusation. Not just that, look at verse four. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. The fear of battle and warfare on earth against the serpent and his enemies. No more. No more afraidness, no more fear. And why are the people there as they follow the lamb, as they hear the, the voice of their shepherd, Jesus Christ, the great one who became a little lamb? He's the shepherd who became a sheep, so his sheep could become his people that he knows and loves. He's the shepherd king who feeds, provides, protects. And John doesn't catch a glimpse of the people because... They deserve to be there because they've earned their way there. Notice what is said. They are the redeemed people of God, verse 4. They're people who've been rescued by the grace of Jesus shown on the cross. They were a people who were under the influence of the evil one. They couldn't see, but now they can. They were in darkness, but now they're in light. They were deaf to his voice, but now they sing his praises. All because Jesus the once and future king won the victory over the dragon and his sidekicks through his sacrificial death on the cross. Friends, the way, the way to victory is the way of the cross. The call now is for us to hear the voice of the shepherd through his word and to take up your cross and follow him. Follow him down the same path, trusting in his victory, relying on his protection. And here's the call. This call, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. All this strange imagery comes down to this. Do you know Jesus Christ personally as the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world? Do you know him? If you know him, you are safe in him now and forever. But in this time, this limited time between Jesus' first and second coming, here's the call from John's pen in the book of revelation this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of god's people